Hello, uh, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Carolyn Connolly for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is December 25th, 2018, Christmas Day, and this has been recorded at Michelle's apartment in Flatbush. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Yeah. Christmas. What brings you um, back down to New York City? Um, I'm here kind of, you know, visiting friends and reconnecting with, uh, you know, where I grew up a little bit, but mostly just to connect with friends, yeah. the extended family. And where do you live these days? I live in the Hudson Valley in the town of New Paltz. Um, yeah. Upstate oh. New York. Lovely. Um, is it upstate? Do they call it upstate? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I'm always unclear. I know. How, how <laughs> Sometimes I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so you grew up in New York? I did. Um, I was born in Hialeah, Florida in, uh, July 15th, 1968. Um, I was adopted. And so I moved to Brooklyn when I was three days old. So the adoption was clearly arranged prior to my birth. Um, and I grew up, uh, my parents took me to my house, which was on uh, 4001 Avenue K um, off of Flatbush Avenue in the area that's commonly called Flatlands. And um, that's where I grew up in South Brooklyn or Southern Brooklyn. <laughs> and give us a brief arc of your life. How long did you live in New York City? Uh, I moved out of New York approximately when I was 38, 39 years old. So I lived, you know, in Brooklyn most of my life and then a little bit in the Lower East Side, a little bit in Harlem in the late 90s, and then back to Brooklyn before I moved uh, to upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, so you've spent a good chunk of your adult life around the city. Yes, yeah. yeah well, I was a consummate Brooklynite. Yes. Look forward to hearing all about that. <laughs> um, so what do you remember of Flatlands when you were growing up? Um, you know, um, I think that like what I remember is playing games in the streets, you know, manhunt in people's backyards and uh, Scully, which was a game played, uh, um, you know, on the concrete. Um, uh, there wasn't much organized sports, um, parks were pretty Spartan and, um, uh, it was a white ethnic area. Uh, so I would describe it as being, uh, an amalgam of Italian, Irish, and Jewish. I'm not sure what the percentages were at different times. Culturally, it would feel that it was kind of a contestation between Italians and Irish for like the, you know, uh, cultural landscape, your geography, you know, like Catholic churches, Irish bars, uh, Italian pastry shops, Italian pasta shops and specialty delis and stuff like that. How did your parents fit into that demographic schema? Uh, my my uh, my my grandparents immigrated from Ireland in the turn of the century um, and moved to Broad Channel, which is an island off of Howard Beach and uh, uh, JFK Airport. Um, 
and uh, we de de uh, defined ourselves as my family was extremely Irish. Um, my parents got divorced soon after I was born. And although I, my, uh, you know, I have, I call myself Irish and Italian, um, I grew up in a house where we listened to the Irish radio. Uh, we had the Irish newspaper delivered and we talked about Ireland like as if it was where part of where we were living growing up. Um, yeah. What, um, how did you get along with your family as you were growing up? Um, well, I grew up in um, uh, the, 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 my mom's side of the family uh, with my mom, who was the youngest of a, uh, there were four siblings, um, although my oldest uncle died uh, in, in the early 1950s. Uh, so, so it was my, so just to be clear, it was my uncle and my aunt, who were my mom's sister and brother. Mm -hmm. And then my grandmother on my maternal side. Um, my dad was, um, who I saw periodically, was um, uh, was an alcoholic and a uh, very intense man. And my mom was an alcoholic. Um, and my aunt was an alcoholic, although less so, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, and um, yeah. So it was uh it was sometimes hard for sure. So it's on the rough side. Yeah. Uh and the schools that you went to growing up? Um I went to PS one nineteen, which was a um a public school um for the first I guess you would describe that as four years, uh or five years kindergarten through fourth grade. And while I was doing that, I went to one day of religious instruction at St. Thomas Aquinas on flat, also in Flatland. It's a big Catholic church. Um, just physically, um, I, I, regardless of the parish size, very physically large structures. Um, and then um, in 1978, my family moved further south into Brooklyn. And when I say south, I mean towards the beach, uh, like Reese Park, uh, still technically the area called Flatlands. And my parents made the decision to send me to Catholic school. So I went to St. Mary, St. Mary, Queen of Heaven on Avenue M and 56th Street. And then after I graduated that, I was zoned for Tilden High School. Uh, which a public high school, which I believe is now closed down. And um, that was considered a, a very, uh, in the hierarchy of public schools, that was considered one of the quote unquote worst, dangerous uh, public high schools. And my parents made the decision to send me to Nazareth High School, which was a small, uh, more liberal uh, high school, ironically, not far from Tilden. <laughs> Yeah. How was I going to Catholic school for you? I think Catholic school was, you could probably say, was a nodal moment of, of, of gender crisis. Um, uh, and it kind of harkens back to something I said earlier. Um, when I was a kid, there were no gendered sports. 
Um, my neighbors were, there were two, I actually had two neighbors named Lori. Um, there were a couple of boys. We played games that were, uh, you know, co-ed, so to speak. And, um, and it was very much like makeshift games, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, when I went to Catholic school, um, one, two things occurred. One was there was the introduction of, 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 of uniforms, gendered uniforms for boys and for girls. Um, and that was, a. uh, 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 suddenly very traumatic. And then two was the introduction of formalized Catholic sports, which largely at that time meant male sports, uh, particularly in grammar school. Uh, so like, you know, there was like girls volleyball, which was like not even a formal activity. And there was like a boys, I guess you could say baseball team, you know, and like that type of things. Yeah. So that that gendering and uniforms and and sports was really a lot of very stressful. Yeah, and around that time, I think also um, that was when um, my parent, my mom, uh, the household I was living in. You know, we moved in 1978. Um, well, yeah, so we began the process of looking for a house. In, in the in the fall of 1977. So that was after a very notable summer in New York. It was the summer of Sam, the uh, uh, serial killer David Berkowitz was operating in, in, in the outer boroughs of New York, including Brooklyn. And it was also the summer of the riots, uh, excuse me, the summer of the uh, black, the famous blackout of 77. And that led to a lot of rioting in, in New York and in Brooklyn in particular. And so my parents made a decision which I think was in part very much motivated by those two factors. We also lived in a really big house that was like structurally weird. It was like a, a three apartment unit. And now at this point, my parents got divorced. And so there was no purpose of having these like, you know, like this, whatever it was, like a six bedroom house with two full kitchen, actually two and a half kitchens and like, you know, multiple master bathrooms. Like my mom wasn't going to get, wasn't looking to get remarried. And so we basically downsized and also moved into what ostensibly was a nicer area. Um, but that, um, for, for whatever reasons that didn't lead to as much happiness as I think, uh, from the outside, you'd, you know, kind of check off all oh, these positive things are happening. But my mom's alcoholism became really acute during that period. And so there was a lot of intense, uh, uh, bad things happening in my household around then. Yeah. Is there anything more you want to say about those difficulties? It's up to you. Um, yeah, I mean, um, There's a lot of shame and a lot of, uh, to this day, I think a lot of uncertainty about what, what was going on, you know, um, I think, you know, like, um, when you try to disentangle your gendered past and try to disentangle, uh, what all these things mean, you know, like, and what, what things were becoming acute, 
it, it's really hard to say on some level, like which one was the primary factor in some kind of like scientific sense, you know, um, you know, my, uh, you know, like the things, you know, I've written about some of this stuff and publicly, you know, talked about it, you know, like, you know, my mom's alcoholism was really bad. Um, I stopped washing and, um, uh, there were, uh, months of me, uh, not bathing at all. And, um, I had like, crusted dirt and crusted shit all over my body and um it's kind of odd i think like uh to to from from the outside if you looked at a portrait of my family you would not think that these things were happening and were as really as bad as they were but they were you know and so um you know, I, I was definitely having like a, a, a meltdown internally and that was having external manifestations of not washing and not cleaning myself and, and, uh, you know, my mom being really destructive and just also being put into this new environment where there was a lot of like, you know, the uniform and the, the culture in the new school that I was in felt very dramatic but i also think it's an age thing too like uh you know you become more aware of what's happening in your surroundings when you're at that age you know you know 10 years old you know you become much more conscious of your 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 landscape at that point you know um your yeah can you get some issues sure Thank you. Uh, you mentioned your adoption. Uh, does, is that something that you thought about growing up? You seem to have put some thought into what you could figure out about it. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I was born nameless infant Thomas. That's what my birth certificate actually says, uh, Thomas being the last name of my mom. Um, with my father's name on my birth certificate is blank. Um, um, of all the things, you know, like I, I just, so I just said all these like traumatic things. Um, I think, um, you can, um, on some, of all, I, I guess what I'm trying to say of all the things in my life, I'm not sure the adoption is that bad. <laughs> I think that like, I think one thing that adoption does is it creates uh, an, a, 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 or at least a, what a, my adoption was, it does create an intellectual awareness of the construct of family and also the, yeah, from a really early age. Like my mom would use words like, I chose you, like I wanted you, I picked you out. And that's actually, those are actually pretty good words, actually. I think my mom had a profound inadequacy that she couldn't have growing up conservative Irish Catholic, that she couldn't give birth to children. And my dad, after my parents got divorced, he went off and had two kids. So I, um, however you want to look at that, my mom was burdened with the feeling that she could not give birth. 
But, um, and I think when I was little, like probably like five or six, and I told some people that I was adopted, that was probably, kids were a little mean. Um, and, but like, but in the hierarchy of things, like, especially being trans, right? Like, and no, and for me, like knowing I was trans from a really early age, um, or gender dysphoric from a really early age, um, that was not the biggest deal. Being adopted was not the biggest uh, thing. Yeah. And what kind of work did your parents do when you were growing up? Yeah. So my yeah. Um, so uh, my mom was identified as a secretary that and homemaker um, on her death certificate. Um, that's what it says, homemaker. Um, she was a secretary. Um, I apologize. I don't have all the years with me right now. But let's say my mom was born in the mid thirties. That would put her at. Uh, uh, that would put my mom at twenty, around like the mid fifties. I would say my mom worked for a very short period of time after high school um, as a secretary in some office or another. She was very proud of the fact that she could type really well. And um, but that was it. Um, and, uh, my dad, um, after high school, he joined the Navy during the Korean war and he learned, uh, he was, uh, put on a destroyer and he learned, um, uh, early me computer mechanics and he had a, an aptitude for it. And so my dad, um, for most of my, for most of what I remember, my dad worked for the brokerage firm Payne Weber, um, uh, which was a Wall Street firm. Um, and he worked in a sector of the company called information control. Um, and he was like, a, a, a in a position of some significance of authority and, um, it involved like the main, the, the actual physical maintenance and uh, of computer systems, like large computers, I mean, uh, that were the size of like a, you know, like a room and such like that. Yeah. Who paid the bills at your mom's house? Uh, my dad gave alimony, which was very small. Um, I believe it was like $40 a month or something like that. And my, my uncle, my aunt, and my grandma had a pension. Uh, they all chipped in and my grandma who died in, in, I think around uh, like 89, maybe my grandma was in at that point in her had been around 89 years old. She was, you know, a hair under 90, uh, basically an agreement was made. So like, yeah, so basically agreement was made. My grandmother obviously was in her. 60s by the time I was like here I'm throwing around some dates but it basically my mom just was going to raise me take care of my grandmother while her older sister and brother went out and paid the bills by working office jobs yeah and you mentioned uh dealing knowing you were gender dysphoric from a very young age yeah yeah what's that what was that knowing like well, you know, like, um, you know, th there's always a weight, like I, I, I just, I just turned 50 years old, but, um, even more important than that, I'm nearing my 30th year of being, you know, out in trans, however you want to pick those dates. 
And so my narrative, um, you know, might sound less introspective or more traditional than like other people's or boring, you know, cliche maybe. Um, and so I'm willing to concede that in advance, a priori. Um, you know, I remember being four and five years old and going to bed every night and wishing I was going to be grow up in a different, wake up in a different body. I wanted to be a girl. I remember telling my parents that my, my aunt, my aunt in particular, my mom, I wanted to be a girl. And I think there was an, an indulgence of some of that behavior, um, you know, which might have had a theatrical tinge of it when I was five years old, dressing up in my mom's clothes, dressing up in my aunt's clothes, begging them to let me grow out my hair. And, uh, 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 you know, from a very early age. Um, and I think important for me was I had uh, uh, an older neighbor who uh wanted to engage in homosexual behavior with me or gay gay behavior and so that was a really positive thing in some ways because it actually created some of my first initial awarenesses of of uh sexual identities and how my own gendered identity differed from my own sexual identity so i was like so I never really, I've gone through life different times identifying as bisexual, queer, or a lesbian, but I never, I never was primarily ident, uh, attracted to men, you know, like, and so, so I had some kind of, you know, uh, uh, the ability to kind of disentangle some of these things, you know, I remember, Probably around 77 or 78, my parents bought a set of, for me, essentially, or the house, a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. And within having those for a month or so, I had read every section on homosexuality, every section on transvestitism and transsexuality hundreds upon hundreds of times I poured over those definitions and um I knew them by heart and so and so these are all internal things like I think a lot of people have this process long before you externally are saying although you could argue that I was but like long before I came out in a in a capital coming out way I had already started to like this process of delineation of like, who am I attracted to? And what, do you know, what do I, how, you know, am I a transvestite? What does that mean? Uh, you know, am I a transsexual? What does that mean? And stuff like that. Yeah. So you mentioned this, uh, year 1977 and, uh, what was happening in New York, mm -hmm. the summer of Sam and the blackout. Do you, do you remember what effect that had on you? That, that sort of context of what was happening in New York City at that time? Well, I mean, I think yes and no. And I think that like, um, again, like, um, uh, so David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, did kill t people in Brooklyn, um, uh, in South Brooklyn, um, near Coney Island. Um, you, you know, your, your, your listeners will have to like look up the details. I'm not sure I'm going to remember them all well. But um uh, so there was a couple shot and that was in Brooklyn near, near our house. And, um, 
the young woman who was murdered was, um, I believe she was Jewish, and they had her memorial at I.J. Morris Funeral Home, which was on Flappish Avenue next to the animal hospital where I took my pets. And so I can remember, you know, the both the news, uh, you know, the, the funeral was like um, a, a, an event with news cameras and stuff like that. Um, and um, so I remember that. And I also remember David Berkowitz get, getting caught and um, and all of those elements. So, you know, there was a I, I think that that period you, you know, you could you know, like anyone from a child's view, there was like a kind of chaos and fear. You know, the blackout happened in the summer. Uh, I think Son of, I think David Berkowitz was arrested like a week or two after the blackout. And, you know, I remember sitting on my stoop with, you know, listening to a transistor radio, our only connection to the world, listening about the looting happening across New York City. And just as a child, I probably was like nine at this point, just being like, whoa, you know, this is really intense, you know? Yeah. When did you first um, encounter queer people or gender deviant people? Or I think that like, there's a couple of moments. I think that like, there was a neighbor on Flatbush, excuse me, on Avenue K, that his name was Freddie, and I believe he was gay. Um, my mom's hairdresser, so I would say sometime around 1980, uh, and I would have been 12 at this point, 13, um, he was 100% gay. I mean, my mom openly talked about it, and uh, my mom really liked him, and, um, and, uh, um, and um, yeah, that, and there was a boy in the neighborhood who I believe was, he was very effeminate and I believe most people understood him to be gay. And I can remember uh, being, running into him on the street because he didn't go to, I don't know where he went to school actually. So I, it wasn't a person I knew particularly well. Um, but I remember running into him on the street and talking to him and being like, you know, just having those moments of being like, um, feeling like a, I think, well, I think I knew he was gay, but also feeling like he had this different energy and he may have not identified as gay at that time. I mean, this is really early on. We're both, even if he was within two years of me, he couldn't have only been like 16, you know? Uh, so those were my first introductions. Oh, and then in high school, uh, a girl, who was uh, uh, on the, was a cheerleader, um, went away to, she was a drunk um, and she got sent to rehab. And when she came back from rehab, um, she came, uh, she was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, that, so those were some of the first initial introductions. Yeah. yeah. What did you do after high school? A lot of drinking and drugging. Um, you know, I think that like, um, uh, I, you know, um, I got really 
um, I, in some ways I came into my own, like, and, and I mean this in a positive and you can interpret it, whatever, but I became like one of the, my initial identities was I became like a metal head. And, uh, you know, I, I was in a really, uh, I was in a unique period of time, you know, musically where like bands like Metallica, Anthrax, um, Slayer were coming out and they were uh, uh, playing in clubs in Brooklyn, like Lemoore's in, um, in Bensonhurst. And um, I was just becoming of age to like become interested in that. And I dove, you know, d- deep into the water of like listening. I was, I, you know, obsessing about music, wanting to be in bands. Uh, wanting to like just be immerse myself in that culture and that became a part of that culture became me you know doing smoking a lot of pot uh, drinking a lot of alcohol and I was um, aggressive in desiring to do every possible drug available to me at the time so like codeine excuse me yeah like codeine pills and angel dust and and all of that stuff like you know um so i so after high school um i kind of did nothing uh really on some level um i think one thing i came to this realization earlier um uh uh, or recently um so two interesting things that happened um one is um uh, I remember, I remember I got a job at a, as a, a working at a, a, a pharmacy and I had long hair at this point. And I think people are, may not truly understand how, uh, disruptive and, um, uh, this was, um, from the time I was 15 years old, I had hair down to my chest and I would constantly get hit on by men constantly and when i wasn't being hit on by men i was being violently threatened uh and i was i like i stood out i was very tall as a kid and i stood out and either people accepted me as a girl in which case people would give me one kind of attention or i started and began to receive tremendous negative attention and what this meant from a work perspective was I was completely unemployable. Um, and, uh, I remember I had a job working at uh, a pharmacy behind the counter and that job didn't work out. And then I can remember two instances. One is I was offered a job working at a lumber yard on Utica Avenue. And contingent on me getting that job would be me cutting my hair to collar length, which I wouldn't do. And then another job I was offered was to work at the El Carib, which is funny if you look at the Donald Trump has a bunch of connections to the El Carib. The El Carib is like a a big uh, Italian uh, like wedding, you know, establishment in South Brooklyn near Kings Plaza. And I was offered a job there to be a server. And that, that was a really good job. Uh, people were making in 1986, people were making 
you know, a hundred dollars a night, a hundred and fifty dollars a night as a server, which is a lot of money back then, still a lot of money from it for, for in today. And, um, but they would not, and they wanted me to work there. They, I, I had friends that were connected to there and they would not hire me unless I cut my hair. Um, and I could not do that. Like my gender dysphoria, if you want to call it that was, I, I, I'm not sure I thought of it that way back then, but I like, this was like important to me. I could not mentally do that. So after high school, I, you know, got jobs. Um, but I was, I, I was really hard to get jobs. Um, at the time, my friend's older brother was a crack addict. Um, and he worked for Pepsi Cola and he, you know, had this, uh, adult, he was basically a Pepsi Cola delivery driver, which was, a, again, like a really good blue collar job. He made so much money on a daily basis that he would pay me out of his salary. So I would get paid like $80 a day to work for him delivering Pepsi Cola. That's how much money he made on a daily basis. But those jobs, but he was a crack addict. So eventually he lost that job and um, it was really hard for me to find employment. Yeah. So you got into the metal scene in the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, so long hair was a was a feature of the yes. metal scene. Yeah. 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 What was what were the gender politics of the metal scene like? How did you fit into that? Like you talked about one element of this. So well, I think the thing that, that like people, a, a lot, I, I, this doesn't happen as much anymore, but I think one of the things people will say is they'll say to me when they hear that, they go, oh, poison and like, you know, um, you know, these glam bands like mm -hmm. that wore makeup and um, that was not my interest aesthetically, mm -hmm. um, nor were, uh, you know, I think that like there's a lot of misnomers. I think like when I think about homophobia and bigotry in the metal scene the two things that stick out for me is guns and roses um who were really overtly homophobic in in the in the late 80s and skid row which is a band from new jersey which people may not have heard of but were they were a huge band they were like ascendant they would have been a bon jovi if they didn't fall apart and the lead singer of skid row used to wear this t-shirt that said aids killed fag aids kills fags dead and um and so what i would say is that um the glam metal scene um and the folks that were wearing makeup were oftentimes the most overtly homophobic and aggro about it it was almost like they were policing their own subculture and i was attracted to the more aggressive angrier music um if i were to talk about the gender politics i would describe it as like a little bit sexless you know it's a, a definitely a, i mean overall it's a very male scene um but it was very sexless but but had interesting politics too like there would be you know like bands talking about uh, U.S. interventions in Nicaragua and El Salvador and war as a concept and, uh, excuse me. And so I was attracted to those things, perhaps more abstract, you know, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons and that type of stuff, but also then like, you know, uh, the, the, you know, like a more gritty kind of urban kind of attitude too. Yeah. For uh, other metalheads who grew their hair long, 
assigned male yeah. folks did um I mean, you had this gender dysphoria that really motivated you to want to keep that hair, yeah. even if it meant costs yeah. for employment. Yeah. What were the circumstances of other people that weren't trans women who would want to grow their hair long? Well, to be honest with you, I I definitely stood out amongst my friends um, in terms of I was the most uh, metal looking person. And that's like, um, I, if you ever watch videos, like look at the video of Slayer playing Studio 54 in 1985, which is a, you could watch that on YouTube. All the people in the audience have short hair. You know, like, you know, like if you like, you know, there's a, a stereotype, maybe even like about the hippies, like every male during the 1960s had long hair. The realities were is that like most people didn't. Like, you know, it was perhaps the most dysphoric or the most committed people that, you know, because you couldn't hide your hair, like, you know, in a way that like you can change your clothes or hide tattoos. You couldn't like wearing a ponytail in 19, being male and wearing a ponytail in 1986, you know, it's like that alone could get you killed. Like that wasn't a, what I'm trying to say is, is that that wasn't uh, like an image of like someone being like, oh, I have long hair, but I'm keeping it more male identified. A ponytail was considered like super feminine. So just having long hair made you d very different, you know? Um, so I would say as I got older and now like I'm after, now it's after high school and people are starting to adult, you know, I, I stood out even more, you know, like and became... Uh, more of an anachronism in my world, you know? Um, yeah. So how long were you um, spending most of your time doing drugs? I mean, it's come as in different layers. And so, um, uh, you know, went through different periods. I think like in from 82 to 86, I was really into taking drugs and drinking. And then after high school, I just focused on drinking um, as I mentioned, my friend, my friend, a friend of mine was a crack addict and that had a, that had a pretty big impact on me. And a lot of people in my community, angel dust was the big drug in, in Brooklyn in the eighties. And, um, the thing about angel dust is like, you, you don't see a lot of recreational angel dust users. Like it's a really, really destructive, frightening drug that impacts you neurologically, makes people very violent and impervious to pain. Um, and so, um, at some point I had the maturity, <laughs> if you will, of, uh, of, um, of, of deciding not to do that. And cocaine, which was very cool, was very expensive, which is why crack was so appealing to, to lots of folks in our communities, um, because it was so cheap. Um, but I, at that point, I think I had made some kind of decision that I was not going to go down that path and so i was more in a socially acceptable like even my mom and i i think it's funny i think in some ways i got along really before i came out um i got along pretty well with my mom because i was staying out till four o'clock in the morning coming home completely smashed waking up in the middle of the afternoon and my mom i think on some level was like totally cool with that like like, oh, you're doing, you're doing okay. I, I know, I understand what you're doing. You're partying, you know, and she had done that probably herself, you know. Yeah. 
I haven't heard a lot about PCP in Brooklyn in, or Angel Dust in the 80s. It was huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were demonstrate. It was such a big... Um, the I remember the first anti-drug demonstrations I ever saw in my life were marches in South Brooklyn against PCP. Parents were so frightened and shook up by um, how uh, uh, intense it was. Um, and like my, you know... I think I missed it by a little bit of a generation or like a couple of years, let's say, not a generation, a couple of years where it was a little bit more attractive to people uh, a couple of years older than me. But I witnessed from a periphery tremendous violence, uh, like irrationally based violence, like almost like after school special. Um, I live next to the, uh, the bus depot which is like right off Flatbush and um, Utica Avenue. And next to that bus depot is the sanitation depot. So it's this really weird, like um, like half a mile section where the city owns all this real estate and it's basically abandoned, right? Like in, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a like residential people walking around. So, that's where we all drank and did drugs and partied. And so you'd see people do things like, you know, punch sanitation truck window uh, mirrors, you know, which were these big truck mirrors on the side of the trucks, you know, just in this, you know, you know, after smoking dust or neurologically crawling on the ground because they couldn't have, they didn't have the motor functions to walk anymore. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, like it was fascinating and attractive and then alternately like completely frightening, you know, and just be like, what the hell is, why would you want to do that? But people were into it. <laughs> I mean, they really were. <laughs> so you were, uh, how long did you spend um, in the, in this metal scene? Well, that? I think that like, um. I've given, you know, uh, I, I'm probably like a metal historian, so I've given this subject a lot of thought. I think that like, um, after a few years, you saw bands like Metallica ascend into a stadium band and other bands kind of peak or become pretty successful. And I got a little bored. Um, but also I started to think, you know, I had these underlying gender issues. And so like, so some things that like I can mention are that, um, um, I started to go to Manhattan and clubs in Manhattan. Um, so I used to go to the rock and roll church, which was the limelight, um, which was, a, a like a hybrid kind of club where you'd run into all different kinds of people, including trans women, um, and rich millionaires in, in tuxedos and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And then going to the Lower East Side, going to the Pyramid Club and Alcatraz and King Tut's Wawa Hut and CBGB's and being exposed to like more hardcore and punk influences. Um, yeah, so I um, kind of to pivot some other stuff. Um, so, um, so uh, 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 probably around 1989, I had a girlfriend and I had, um, she really, uh, 
uh, like me a lot and uh, really wanted to be intimate with me. And I had never been intimate in a, in a kind of pull your pants down physical way with a woman. And, um, and I broke up with her. And I broke up with her the night we saw Dead Poet Society, which I believe was in like the summer of 88 or 89. And I broke up with her and I said, I will never date another woman until I come out and uh, as as a woman. And I immediately after breaking up with her uh, began dating another woman <laughs> or I, I fell into uh, the lap of, uh, so to speak, of this other woman who I met at the limelight, who was a stewardess, actually, not from New York City. And the funny thing about her, um, she was a little bit more direct. And so within being with her for a couple of months and I wouldn't sleep with her, she was like asking me kind of adult questions of being like, so why don't you want to sleep with me? And like, what's going on? And, um, and that kind of now, like, so I broke up with this one woman saying, I'm not going to go through this again. I'm not going to, you know, I can't be in a relationship, pretend to be a boy or a male adult. And then I, you know, went into this other relationship and that was it basically. And, you know, we can now backtrack and talk about other things that were happening. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was it. Like 1989, I was like, okay, I'm coming out. Like I'm going to do this. And, 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 and I did, you know? Yeah. Before um, you came out, tell me about encountering trans women at the limelight or other trans people. I don't think I have many stories like other than like I remember being at the club and watching this woman dance and being like, oh, wow, she's really beautiful. That's really awesome. Um, But not not having, um, you know, I would say that like at that time period, the bigger issue for me was the AIDS crisis and exposure to, for lack of a better term, the gay male community. And, but, but I would emphasize the word AIDS crisis as being the dominant thing. Like, and what I mean by that is that like, you know, 1986 to 1990, this is like the peak of the AIDS crisis. And, um, so here you had like, um, uh, uh, from a cultural perspective, you had bands like Guns N' Roses and uh, Skid Row talking about fags. You had uh, uh, comedy was really big during this period. And Eddie Murphy was the top of the world, but also people like Andrew Dice Clay and Sam Kinison and uh, hugely influences. These were like blue collar comedy uh, 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 that really drew that were it was kind of a new phenomena at the time and all of them were talking about the AIDS crisis and gay men specifically and so um it became inescapable kind of like my it became omnipresent you know there was an iconography you'd you suddenly you'd come home and watch read the newspaper or watch abc news and people were demonstrating about aids and you know this was a gay disease you know and so suddenly i was uh um here i am this closeted trans woman and i'm and i'm faced with thinking about 
this thing that is not totally that is connected to me in some way yeah um so i grew up irish catholic my uncle my uncle mike he was uh um he donated to a lot of catholic charities in many ways he was kind of like a saint and one of the charities he donated to was covenant house which was run by father bruce ritter in um in hell's kitchen section of of manhattan and in my uncle's room he had a pamphlet and in the pamphlet was like a, a trifold black and white pamphlet and it was the story of two suburban boys and the story goes kind of as follows these two suburban boys move to new york city one of them comes out as trans plucks her eyebrows shaves her legs you know uh, like the lou reed song would say uh, takes hormones and she gets aids and dies and the other boy somehow finds covenant house is saved and um and lives happily ever after and i read that pamphlet like I, I i read that pamphlet like i read the encyclopedia britannica over and over again and in 1980 in the 1980s as a teenager i knew i knew two things i knew i was going to go to new york city i was going to do what that trans woman did and I did not care at all if I was going to die, that it was much more, I was going to be that person. And that would be the, the, the greatest accomplishment of my life that would be to be a trans woman, you know, and, um, you know, and, and so I wanted that irrespective, you know, irrespective of any consequence, I wanted that more than anything. And so that connects in, a, in an organic way to my understanding of the AIDS crisis. And, and you can extrapolate that to mean a lot of different things in the sense that, you know, you know, Larry Kramer gave that famous speech in like 91, where he said 150,000 gay men have died in the United States. He's not totally correct about that figure in that of those 150,000 people, there were a lot of trans women who were fall, uh, misidentified, um, and I'm not dis I'm not retroactively dissing Larry Kramer, you know, like, you know, that was the time that we lived in. But you know, our all our during that period, our trajectory and our lives were very much bound up in in that experience of the AIDS crisis, you know. Um, and that pamphlet by Bruce Ritter in the Covenant House ties it together that to be trans and a teenager in the 80s and to come out, it meant severing your ties with suburbia. It meant severing your ties with Brooklyn. It meant moving to Manhattan, metaphorically or literally, and doing all of these things that would expose you likely to sex work, uh, expose you likely to, you know, violence and poverty and expose you to the AIDS virus. Did you make any money before coming out as trans? Yes. Yeah, so, um, 
my dad, who was estranged and 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 as a te- and it became a, fr- a kind of a frightening figure as I got older. At this point, he's getting a little older, but he still works for Payne Weber. And my dad uh, offers me a job. He says, "I can get you this cush job on Wall Street." And I said, "Okay." So here I am doing nothing. And you have long hair. I have long hair. I did cut it a little bit shorter to make it look neater. But like I didn't get like a mullet or I, I just cut my hair a little bit, you know, a little bit shorter than it had been. And went into Payne Weber with a business suit on and got a job working nights at Payne Weber for information control with this like ragtag group of Vietnam vets is not it is not the stereotype of Wall Street that you would think alcoholics Vietnam vets all guys who lived or lived in upstate New York to some degree gun nuts first introduction to people who like own guns and were into guns and a totally easy cush job and I was making a lot of suddenly I was making a lot of money and um and I worked I had a really bizarre schedule so I got paid to I I had a full-time job at Payne Weber and two weeks of the month I worked three days a week and two days of the month I worked two days of the week and I worked 12-hour shifts um which sometimes turned into 14-hour shifts starting at nine o'clock at night so it was like nine to nine which worked perfectly for my party schedule because I would go home, sleep all day, go out and party. And I literally, a, a busy week for me to, a busy week for me was working three days a week. And so I got that job in, I think, 87 ish. And, um, and that helped fund the initial my coming out, which involved going to see a therapist. Um, and, uh, you know, being like, I'm a transsexual, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, that type of stuff. Yeah. How did he find the therapist? So that's a, so that's a funny story. It's a true story. So Phil Donahue, um, Phil Donahue is a talk show host. He was kind of like pre-Oprah Winfrey. And Phil Donahue had trans people on his show. Um, he had Carolyn Cossie, who was a supermodel. Um, she was on one show. I saw that. Um, and then he had like, and, uh, and, and the unique thing about Carolyn Cossie was that, was that she was young and she had come out in her twenties. So that was pretty inspiring to see. Um, and then because most of the trans people that you would see on Phil Donahue were including some people who I eventually met and became friends with were in their forties. They seemed old, you know, like when you're young, they were like old people, um, and they had, they had kids, they had lived lives and built, you know, houses and all that stuff. So, um, Phil Donahue had a, a therapist on, this is a true story. Phil Donahue had a therapist on who gave her home phone number on the air on live TV. And I wrote the phone number down and on a Sunday night, completely drunk. With no conception, because I just, I literally didn't know that there was a different time zone on the west coast of the United States. I literally called this woman's home phone number and she picked up and 
I talked to her crying, telling her I was trans and explaining to her that I lived in Brooklyn, New York. And she gave, and she shockingly talked to me and she gave me the phone number of Dr. Leah Schaefer, who was a direct protege, protege of Harry Benjamin, um, who was a ther licensed therapist and trans specialist in New York City. And that's how I got a therapist for, for uh, um, I don't remember this woman's name, but she was a trans woman, a, th a licensed therapist, and she gave out her home phone number in the 1980s on Phil Donahue's show. That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you started therapy and I did, you know, about... yeah. And therapy, like, you know, I'm very, in some ways, like, you know, like I feel important to say this, like, like I went to therapy to be trans. I didn't go to therapy and, and, um, to, to talk about my feelings or talk about, and my therapist actually, wasn't there to talk about my feelings, actually. My therapist was like, okay, you're a blue collar kid from Brooklyn who is uh, living at home with their parents and this is what your life is. Okay, what you should do is go to college, which is uh, something at the time I was thinking about doing. Go to college, stay in the closet, cross-dress at night if you want, go to college, get a career, and after you've established these things, come out. That's largely, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to like, I, I may be oversimplifying things a little bit, but that's largely was the messaging, was like, you need to, and it's not the worst advice in the world either, like from a survival perspective, like, but I, but from a survival perspective, I was incapable of doing these things. My alcoholism, my, 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 my self-loathing and destructive behavior, my inability to connect with people, all of these things were a product of me being in the closet. So now I had opened the dam and I was going to see a therapist on the Upper West Side and I had enough money to do this. But once that dam opened up, it was kind of all downhill, you know, it was like, I couldn't do this, you know? And, um, like, so like I, like, and so I, I, I had physical manif even prior to taking hormones, I started to do all these things that like really disturbed my parents. Like I got my nose pierced. I got my tongue pierced. I got my nipples pierced. These are things I was doing like 1989 and they were like, pretty highly unusual things to do at that time. I shaved the back of my head and dyed my hair fluorescent pink, which was probably one of the most traumatic things my parents had ever experienced in their lives. You know, um, at this point, I'm, I was like culturally moved into the Jane's Addiction, Nine Inch Nails, you know, gothy metal weirdness category and these things just freaked my parents out you know and i was doing all these things uh as a manifestation of my dissatisfaction with my body and how i was living my life at the time you know so these things were kind of happening concurrently um yeah so what did you do instead of go to college and get and well, I did. Yeah, I did. End up in a well, the, yeah. before coming out as trans. So I, 
so I had this leather jacket, right? And, um, uh, you know, like lots of metalheads had MCs, like uh, motorcycle jackets. Um, but now I graduated to this like androgynous co- leather coat that like went down to mid thigh. And on it, I put two stickers. I put abortion on demand without apology, which was this fluorescent orange and black sticker by the group Refuse and Resist. And I had this sticker that said support vaginal pride, um, which was a, a, by a subgroup of ACT UP, which was the Women's Health WAM, the Women's Health Action Mobilization. And I had a silence equals death button. And so I went to college at Brooklyn College as at this point I was out in the sense that I started to tell my friends I was trans. Soon afterwards, I started to take hormones at very low dosages. Um, but I was trying to assimilate into Brooklyn College. And my goal was to come out fully to the administration and live as a woman on campus. Um, and I did that kind of for many years, but um, it didn't really work out very well. Yeah. It's now an okay time for a break. Sure. Uh, so you were at Brooklyn College. Yeah. You uh, had a, um, a really amazing jacket with some <laughs> excellent <laughs> um, stickers. Yeah. And uh, you wanted to come out fully at Brooklyn mm-hmm. College, and you were on a low dose of hormones. Yeah. What was that like? How did it work out? Well, I mean, I think that, like, um, ultimately it didn't. I think that, like... Um, I think that as many times as I tried to, I think that like there's a bunch of different things that like that I, I don't know if I have the answer to completely right, but like I think some things that folks have to understand is that like getting your gender identity changed was a bit murkier and unclear then. I was born in the state of Florida. And so I had a Florida birth certificate and I had an adopted Florida birth certificate, which to this day looks really weird. You know, it has virtually no information on it because my, you know, the lack of kind of backstory. Um, I think that like, I, yeah, I mean, I think that like, I felt like, um, well, one is I wasn't work. I hadn't figured out the working thing yet, right? I hadn't figured out the living and working thing yet. Once I no longer could be uh, uh, with my parents, no longer could be, you know, had come out to them and they did no longer accepted me. The idea of going to college was appealing, but you have to understand as a, as an adult, as a trans woman, I still had not figured out how to navigate the world. And um, I didn't even know how to articulate these things to people at the time. And I think that like, you know, um, maybe I didn't want to sometimes because it was so hard. But um, so, you know, there's the housing thing. There's the the job thing. 
and it really took me a bunch of years and in some ways I'm still dealing with that today, you know, like of trying to figure all this stuff out, you know, so, you know, um, so I went to college, I got involved and I met, um, I guess you could say a trans identified butch in some ways. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to speak for them and their identity, but maybe that would be a fair way to describing it. Um, uh, at the time and they, uh, this person saw my jacket and wanted to be friends with me and then wanted to know what my deal was and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, was a part of helping me come out, you know, this person took me to my first lesbian bars and, uh, you know, we talked through things like the Michigan women's music festival and, uh, uh, I think the East coast women's music festival, which was somewhere in Connecticut or something, you know, which also had a transphobic policy that they had went to. And, um, so like, you know, trying to just figure all these things out in my identities and stuff like that. And so, uh, college, which I've tried to do a, a few times, never really worked out for me. So I never have graduated college. Although people perceive me as being like a college educated person, uh, I never graduated college. Yeah. What were the uh, lesbian bars you went to? Um, so, um, well, so like the, the, you know, like the, the one that I'll exalt to the, to the end of my days would be the click club. Um, the click, the original click club, Julie, Julie Tolentino's club on 14th street. Um, uh, like where I think, well, the Patagonia store is now near it. Um, uh, there, I, physically the, the click club, which was in a basement space, uh, is like to the, you know, to the west of it or east of it. But I went to the click club a lot. I was really into the click club, went to the piers, hung out on the piers, drank on the piers, um, went to crazy nannies. Um, that was a club I want, I like going to. And then went to the Boiler Room, which was a mixed club at the uh, time, and uh, some other bar, the Now Bar, and different bars like that in the East Village, which were more gay male dominated. Um, Manhattan bars were very gender segregated at the time, and also probably racially segregated as well. Um, but um, yeah, so those were the, many of them for sure. And then later Meow Mix, went to Meow Mix a bunch when Meow Mix opened, yeah. But that was later, you know, Meow Mix came around a few years later. How how do, um, uh, what were your cross-racial interactions and relationships like at this time? Like how white were these various scenes and communities and institutions that you were in? So, um... I want to tread carefully in part because of, uh, of, of nuance, not because of fear of saying the wrong thing. Right. Like, so I came out and some of my first social interactions with trans people were at the Metropolitan Gender Network, which was at the Unitarian Church in the like Gramercy Park area. And that was all white, like all, maybe not totally white, but all uniformly white felt very middle class, very older, you know, I was always the youngest person in the room 
And then, and I complained about this. I complained about this to people and to my therapist um, at the time. And um, there was the survivors of trans. about the age? Stuff uh, the age the stuff. Uh, I would say the age and mm-hmm. like the class identity, like where we were. I mean, again, like, like there was a lot of boohooing. There was a lot of like 40 year old people who were losing their families, their spouses. They had now come out to their spouses. Their spouses had rejected them. They come out to their jobs. Their jobs had rejected them. Their children were potentially being taken away from them. And that was a lot of, that felt like a lot of space at these meetings were for that. And I had none of that. And I think there was jealousy. People were jealous of me. I was pretty and and past and like, you know, was able to navigate the world and, you know, and people used to uh, get uh, really criticize me because I was, I I basically dressed the same way then as now, you know, you'd see me wearing combat boots and no bra and a white, what some people would call a wife beater t-shirt. And I had my head shaved and like, people were like, Carolyn, you could be, you know, a supermodel, you could be walking the balls, or you could do this and that. And I was like, I was not that interested in those things, you know. And so there was very much a, a different experiences, you know, and like people did seem kind of middle class and people did have these things that I didn't have. And those were the, a lot of those meetings and support meetings were that. And so then I remember getting to go to the Positive Health Project in Hell's Kitchen, which I think Chloe was uh, uh, involved in pretty heavily. And at those meetings, I was you know, me and Chloe were essentially like the only white people. And most of the people at those meetings were uh, working. All those people were out. You know, they were living as women and they were black and Latino, mostly black. And they were out and they were working the streets and they were having some pretty rough lives, um, but were super welcoming. Like there was never like any like, um, you know, weirdness or anything like that. Um, I met Donald Suggs, who has had many careers in uh, Donald Suggs, unfortunately passed away. Uh, I met him at the Metropolitan Gender Network and we became friends. And Donald, I think, was the media director for the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation at the time. And he was very, you know, Donald had gone to Yale. He was at Yale with Jenny Livingston and uh, Jodie Foster. This is prior to Paris is Burning coming out um, uh, or when he was in school with them. And Donald was very connected to the trans community and interested in the trans community and wrote about it for the Village Voice. And Donald took me to like my first trans bars. So I went to Edelweiss and Sally's too. Um, Later on went to Tranny Chasers. Yes, that's really in the name of a bar. Um, And these places were kind of like rough trade kind of, you know, um, the entrance fee, the mafia owned, uh, uh, what we would today say, cishet men would pay $25 to get in, right? And then they would have to pay for these outrageously high drinks. And trans women, really all women, they didn't say it. You know, that was not a a word people used, right? So it was like 
all women would get in for free. So I would go to these bars and like you could drink for free and there was an understanding that like what was happening was a monetary exchange, like you were meeting dates and then going to some of the flea bag hotels in the area or some of the, in the case of Edelweiss, I think probably some of the back rooms and doing stuff and maybe giving a kickback to the bars and whatnot. Maybe not. I don't really know. And I remember being at those bars and uh, I remember this one woman saying to me, why are you here? You know, I was the only white person in a, in a room of a hundred. Oh, excuse me. I was the only white woman in a room. There were lots of white men. And this woman was like, why are you here? And I was like, I'm, 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 I'm like you. Um, I'm a, you know, and she was like, you're not a genetic girl. You're not a real girl. Cause those were like words of the time. And I was like, no, I'm like you. And they were like, whoa, you know, cause again, like I was wearing combat boots and had my head shaved and was wearing a leather jacket and just did not present in this, uh, uh, you know, traditional blue collar feminine way per se. And so, um, so those were some of my experiences, you know, a lot of them were really good. A lot of them were bad, you know, like, I mean, I remember being with my girlfriend in the, on the piers and running into these two African-American lesbians, butches. And I think they had like a blunt or a, a joint and we had like a bottle of wine. And so we were passing it around and then at some point, the one of the two women started to misgender me. And she didn't mean anything mean by it, but like, she didn't consider trans women real women. And she didn't like, I could call myself whatever I wanted, but they she, at the time, she didn't perceive me as, you know, having like female pronouns, you know, and that hurt, you know, um, uh, and I've had other experiences like that, like, you know, people at bars pulling on my skirt and, and saying, are you, you're not a real woman, are you? Or stuff like that. And at dyke bars, you know, Did you uh, find work eventually? Yeah, I mean, I did different things. Like uh, Donald got me a job actually working for GLAAD. So I did that as like a media intern, a paid media intern. I worked uh, for like a law firm, like a liberally, a probably state or city funded law firm that advocated for like homeless people and for like tenant, uh, uh, evictions and stuff like that. Like, like ad basically like advocates for, for folks who were kind of getting lost in the system. So I did like secretarial work for that, you know, um, and that's, uh, that became like a part of my identity essentially, um, as I became a political activist and, and needed to pay the bills, I was like, well, I'm just going to do secretarial work because that gives you access to a computer and to phones and to the internet for free and a copy machine all for free. And I could just do those things and, 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 and basically do politics, you know, and steal time from, you know, I didn't have a career at any of these times. I just basically like looked at these jobs as conduits for me to do kinds of social activism and stuff like that. When did you start getting involved in political work? Early on, I mean, like, so 
after high school, um, my family, you know, um, uh, the the IRA or what are called the, the the hunger strikes happened in 1981 in Ireland, and I was pretty aware of that. And but I'm still at this point like 13 years old. And but the 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 height of the war really happened after the hunger strikes. So like in that period of 81 to 88. Uh, those nine years, and I became more and more aware of those things. And my parents, who were very anti-IRA, very Catholic, still the exposure that I was getting to stuff by uh, listening to the news, uh, reading the newspaper, uh, Irish newspapers, uh, was really influencing me. Um, uh, in 1988, uh, three members of the IRA um, Dan McCann, Sean Savage, and Mairead Farrell were executed by the British SAS Special Services in Gibraltar, which is an island, uh, uh, basically a UK property, sort of, sort of, off the coast of Spain. And that had a huge influence on me. Um, that made, that was an international incident. Like a like a real international incident, like where the where the British government and Margaret Thatcher were cascaded by the internet uh, or or you know criticized by the international community for their behavior, and um, that had a huge influence on me. And uh, after that incident, I actually wanted to join the IRA. I was like um, very naive at the time of what that meant. You know, uh, but I was like, oh, I want to do this. Like, I want to get, you know, you know, subsume myself and, and give myself over to the cause. And then in the summer of 89, Yusuf Hawkins was murdered by a group of uh, mostly Italian, but also Irish young people in uh, in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. And he was violently assaulted, uh, beaten and then shot to death by a group of up to 30 young people. And I was, I very much used the, my understanding of Irish politics in the North and discrimination and racism to look at the murder of U.S. Yusef Hawkins. And I was really angry and outraged at how my mom and how my community felt about uh, Hawkins' murder. Why was Hawkins murdered? Was it because he was black. He Yusef Hawkins. Yeah, Yusef Hawkins was looking for a used car on like a some night in Bensonhurst. There, there was a if you go back, there was you know there's these stories that Yusef Hawkins it's sexualized. Yusef Hawkins was looking for like a young Italian girl who he had flirted with, but that's you know bullshit. You know he was a young African American kid who was looking to buy his first car, essentially used car. And so had brought two of his friends walking through the streets of Bensonhurst, you know, it's just prior to Craigslist and cell phones, you know, so he's like probably took the subway and is now like walking to this house in this area. He doesn't know ran across a schoolyard, a full of young Italian and kid white people. They saw him and, um, this paralleled my own experience with black people in my community in South Brooklyn. You know, I often say that, like, you know, you could not be black and walk through my neighborhood and not be physically violently assault assaulted, you know. And so and I took that for granted growing up, you know, or turned a blind eye 
Um, sometimes I was so young, like, you know, like, what would I have done? But now, like, now it's 1989, and I'm, like, nearing 20 years old, and, you know, having adult conversations with people I was friends with, um, a lot of them Irish, too. And so I, like, you know, we all hung out at, you know, like, while I was going to these metal bars, we're also going to Irish bars. So Irish culture is a big thing. So, like, a lot of my friends were... You know, U2 was really popular at the time. And, you know, like there was a Irish, Irish identity was having a little bit of a cultural moment at that mo at that time. And so like me being an IRA supporter was actually totally fine. Like, you know, no one cared. Didn't mean much either. Like, here I, you know, I'm just like another drunk Irish kid at a bar saying I love the IRA. It's irrelevant, you know, to any Irish person. You know, what does that mean? Um, but all of a sudden I'm like, well, why was, you know, like, you know, like Yusef Hawkins was murdered, like this is wrong. And it just got worse when political activists, you know, probably most famously Al Sharpton, you know, they all began marching in Bensonhurst and the communities outraged throwing watermelons and bottles and stuff like that. And you have to understand, like, I really identified with Bensonhurst. I hung out in Bensonhurst at the time too. Lemoore's was in Bensonhurst. There's a big uh, conduit of of bars in Bensonhurst and Bay Ridge uh, that were that became uh, attractive to to me as a as a younger person, and so. I, I, you know, Bensonhurst is not like this abstract area. It's like, it's pretty far, right? Like, you know, but it's still like, I, I felt like ownership over that community, uh, or connection to that community. And so I was very upset. And so, um, I often say to people, and I think it's true that, you know, the, I, the Irish struggle, the, uh, uh, understanding racism and the AIDS crisis, had this dynamic effect in my coming out in some ways because I became very aware of them and, you know, um, you know, started to feel like, you know, uh, you know, I needed to I articulate who I was internally. And I was uh, a woman and I was a person who didn't want to be a racist and I didn't want to, you know, uh, conceive of myself as that. And I think that like, you know, you know, and so those are politics that became very important to me, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then where did you get politically involved? Like what were some of the meetings like well, or protests yeah. or other things that you started connecting to? So I um so I was working at Payne Weber and I um met a group of young people from Staten Island who were the first intellectual, blue-collar intellectuals I ever met in my life. And I met them through a co-worker at Payne Weber who was into the dead Kennedys. And he was like, you would like my friends in Staten Island. All they ever talk about is politics. So I I went to Staten Island and, um, and, and hung out with them. Um, I was working in, either in Manhattan or New Jersey. My company, Payne Weber, actually moved to New Jersey. And Jersey is actually not that far from Staten Island. And I had this really open schedule where I like worked two days, three days a week and I had all this free time. And so I would go to Staten Island a lot. And so I went to a bunch of IRA demonstrations in New York City 
and uh and and had no luck finding community but i went to them by myself and then i uh met my friends in staten island and i think the first things that they were into were amnesty which was super weird for me and um Amnesty International. International. Immediately when I started to ask, I was like, well, what do they think of the IRA? And like that went over like a fart in church, you know, (laughs) like, you know, but that was my perception of the world was like, oh, like, you know, Amnesty good, like U2, you know, I think there was a big U2 police concert for Amnesty, you know, for South Africa and these different things. So I was like, yeah, I'm into this, like. You know, the IRA, like, we got to support them, you know, and it's like, no, no nonviolence, you know, uh, you know, so uh, it was a very strange dynamic. So they were into the death penalty stuff, which was big. Uh, they were into homeless stuff. There was a big, giant homeless demonstration um, or march against homelessness in D.C. in like 88 or 89. And a bunch of my friends from Staten Island went down to that. Were they in a collective together? Yeah, they were like in a weird kind of hippie, punky collective of people. Did it have a name? Do you know? They call themselves the group. Yeah. And there were, yeah. And uh, and they still exist, I think, sort of, but not really. Um, Some some of them are still around. But um, so, and we did things like we went to the first Lollapalooza together which is like in 91 maybe or 90 we and I was really big into that because I was a huge James Addiction and Nine Inch Nails fan and they were like they were really into the Beatles and the Cure and like Morrissey and the Smiths and that like but I was more into the like more aggressive new wavy music um and um yeah, so we started to, so we did different stuff together. They had some art projects. Um, I, I went, I began to go to ACT UP demonstrations either by myself or with some friends at Brooklyn College that I met. Um, at, you know, different, you know, kind of bleeding years in together. Um, and then we started to do abortion activism around uh, clinic defense, which was, um, I mean, probably the biggest thing that happened was in 92, during the Democratic National Convention, uh, Operation Rescue came to New York and targeted clinics for like the eight days prior to the convention. And over 5,000 people, I believe, mobilized to protect clinics across the tri-state area, but mostly obviously in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. And I was, so me and my friends in Staten Island, oh, in the Gulf War. So we did stuff around that. So there was like a bunch of different things. Um, and um, I remember I, went to an El Salvador demonstration probably in 88 or 89 at Governor Pataki's office, which was near Grand Central Station. And here I am by myself and I'm kind of like, you know, I didn't look like people, and this may sound odd to people, but if you weren't from Manhattan, you looked really different. You know, there was a saying at the time uh, uh, in a night in a social world was the bridge and tunnel crowd. People have misunderstand what that means, but I can explain it to you. The bridge and tunnel crowd were people from Brooklyn who wanted to come into Manhattan. We were viewed as inferior 
Um, we were not wanted at our clubs. And so there were, you know, door people to keep us out of these clubs. So I very much fit that role of like, I look like a metalhead, right? Like, and here I am at this political demonstration. I stood out and Chris Day, who is an anarchist in love and rage to his credit, there were probably other anarchists there, but to his credit, Chris Day walked up to me, began talking to me, and uh, uh, was very kind and humane. And we had, uh, I, I was actually recounted the conversation. I had dinner uh, Christmas Eve with Chris and his family last night. And I recounted some of that conversation with Chris where uh, uh, Chris was like, or what do you think of anarchism? And I had just joined DSA because all my friends in Staten Island joined DSA at the time. And uh, Michael Harrington was associated with DSA and uh, Cornell West and whatnot. And uh, and I was like, well, my fr I remember saying to him, uh, well, my friend says, my friend Michael from Staten Island, my friend Michael says, I'm an anarchist philosophically, but I'm a social democrat practically. And Chris probably could have said a million things, but he just kind of chuckled politely and 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 warmly and i never forgot that i like remembered that and was like so this was my i bought the love and rage newspaper um and actually ironically love and rage i believe that issue covered trans people and i was completely shocked completely shocked and i was like wow there are anarchists and they like trans people. And I had already looked at Michael Harrington and uh, DSA's platform on the, I think I probably said the gay community at the time. And I looked at some other things. And so I was like, wow, anarchists like trans people. This is, you know, okay, cool. Kind of made a mental note. Did you get involved in weapon rights? I did. I did. I um. I uh. So after the Gulf War, and after doing clinic defense work, um, a lot of my friends on Staten Island, uh, had, like a lot of political activists do, at at times when there's peak active peak of activism, they had completely stopped going to classes. Oh, and there were also building takeovers. I, I, you know, like in 89, 90, 91, there were all, there were, there were budget cuts that targeted CUNY and SUNY schools. And at those different years, and you, you could look into it, there were small building takeovers and large building takeovers, meaning there were some times where the half, like practically half the university system was shut down for, for weeks. And other times it was just like a building or two. And Staten Island, the College of Staten Island, was actually involved in those things. They sent people to coalition meetings, but they also took over things like their library for uh, added study hours and stuff like that. So they were like a, a, an activist entity. And um, gosh, I forget where. Oh, so uh, so after these events, my friends were like, we're going back to class, man. We're going to like, we're going to put our nose to the grindstone and we're going to, you know, get our college degrees. 
And at this point, I still hadn't figured out all of these things of like work and living. And uh, that was a big thing. Like I thought we were all going to move in together. Um, We were going to get like this group home, group apartment. There was like a lot of uh, research done on neighborhoods and houses in Staten Island, but also in uh, the Lower East Side and squats through all these discussions. And they never came to fruition. And so... And I, more and more, I identified at the time with the queer community. And so they were all uh, ambiguously straight or bisexual identified more in a theoretical sense than in a practical sense. And so I decided to become, kind of dive into anarchism and dive into like the Lower East Side, essentially, and I did. I got uh, involved in Love and Rage uh, and and joined. Tell me about that. Um, well, you know, I um, so uh, so again, like at the time, there were probably only two political trends that I was aware of that were friendly to trans people. There was Love and Rage, and there was the Workers' World Party. And at some point, uh, the Metropolitan Gender Network, um, MGN, as it was called, moved from the Unitarian Church to the Workers' World Party office. And so I actually was, I had social interactions with Leslie Feinberg, Workers' World, other comrades and friends in that community. And I had a fairly positive attitude towards them were, you know, multiracial, they were blue collar, um, you know, they were really rooted in the community and um, really cool people. And they were hosting these meetings at their, at their big activist center, which seemed really rad, like, you know, big space with tons of people and offices and these banner painting parties and whatnot. But I wasn't really interested in workers world. I think partially that was a cultural thing. I think they, like, I still, like, I wanted to be, I had a, I had started to nurture an identity, but also I wanted to be connected to, and I want to be careful about how I say this, but I I saw myself as connected to, like, the abortion rights movement, to, like, ACT UP and Queer Nation and, like, you know, and Workers World seemed to do a lot of Workers World stuff. From the outside looking in, that's what it seemed like. And so it seemed like, so I wanted to be involved in these other things. So when when uh, uh, the opportunity and I got interested in Love and Rage, I was like, I'm eff it, I'm joining. And, um, you know, called up, was super nervous and met with Love and Rage people. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know, kind of almost had this confession that I'm trans and like, this is a part of my identity and. And Love and Rage, I believe at the time, was working on a special issue called Anarchism and Feminism. And so the production collective in New York City, it was only women were making the decisions. And uh, so I was welcomed into that space. And uh, 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 that was kind of, that was a little bit of Love and Rage's project at the time, Uh so Love and Rage was also insularly. So it wasn't actually that different from Workers World, ironically. Suddenly I was put into a newspaper production scene, which is not exactly what I thought I was going to be doing with my time. But that's what 
that's how I, I started, you know? Yeah. So Love and Rage was a newspaper yes. and like a national network. Yeah, anarchists. I think it was called the... It was Love and Rage Re- Revolutionary Anarchist Federation. So it was a federation of collectives and uh, membership groups around the country. And also had chapters in um, uh, uh, Canada and um, Mexico. So it identified itself as a North American uh, 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 anarchist federation. And, um, and me having politics that were like, um, you know, just of the times, like, you know, I was like, you know, I thought the IRA were cool. I thought the FMLN in El Salvador were cool. I thought the Intifada in Palestine was cool. There wasn't a knee-jerk anti, like, oh, those are like, those are like national liberation movements trying to form step new states, right? Like, that's kind of like the, the anarchist motif. And, and, and I'm not going to say that's not true, that anar- that love and rage people didn't believe that, but there was a lot of empathy, you know, and like, uh, uh, and nuance and people were not overtly hostile. So like I was able to operate, you know, working through probably some political naivete on my own part, but also people were not like judging me as being like backward or stupid or something like that. Yeah. And what was Love and Rage like a cadre group or was it really open or what would what, what's it was a little bit of both, you mm-hmm. know, like I think like once the, one is obviously there's a lot of insularity to all of these groups and subcultures. And so like you're really stepping through hoops and doors to get in. Um, um, and I think Love and Rage was in a transitional period. There had been like some split you know where people left who were not as into the seriousness that the organization was going in um so um there was a everybody was doing something for the organization and love and rage did a lot of anti-racist organizing in these ara groups out in the midwest in detroit chicago minnesota and uh and then like in the northeast it was a little bit less clear what people were doing at least when i first joined but then when i first joined one of the first things that happened was it was the 25th anniversary within a year let's say or nine months it was the 25th anniversary of stonewall uh which was this was really significant there was a lot of dynamism in the community at that time you know the aids crisis had led to all of this social activism and growth, you know, the modern, what we live in today is a really byproduct of the AIDS crisis. It was built out of the AIDS crisis. And so there's a lot of energy and creativity and anger. And so, um, so Stonewall now happened as kind of like a, a coalition and, uh, Love and Rage was heavily involved in founding the coalition and, uh, uh, generating activities and, uh, brought, you know, had like militant demonstrations and had speaking events and had coalition meetings where other left groups like the ISO came and, you know, uh, and so I got involved in that and I was like excited. Yeah. And uh, how big was Love and Rage? How many people were involved? Ooh, um, gosh. 
I'm not really sure I could say numbers, but like I would say at times it was like we would have meetings in New York, like week weekly meetings where there were like 12 people, 14 people. Other times it was seven or eight. Um, and then um, our national meetings were, you know, uh, obviously like, uh, you know, not every vocal group would send their whole membership, but you know, 200 people or something like that, you know, uh, maybe probably a lot less, you know, like maybe 60 or so cadre-ish type of things, you know, yeah, in some of the bigger cities. Yeah. And is there a more you could say about their politics beyond like anarchism and enthusiasm for trans people and feminism? Yeah, I mean, I think that like the thing that I would emphasize most and I think is most of value is like uh, openness. Like, you know, like they're like Love and Rage were a group of people that had a intellectual curiosity and a humbleness onto some degree. And they were coming out of these new mo these new political trends. Right. Like, you know, uh, post 70s. And so like. I think like when you, if you were to compare it today, you'd have to say like, you know, like if you're, if you're looking at a group, whatever group it is, like DSA or like whatever group it is, like how does this group feel about the independent activities of different political forces? And what I mean by that specifically is like, you take something like Black Lives Matter and it's like, not only is Black Lives Matter awesome in and of itself it reflects self-activity and political dynamism within specific communities and i mean speaking bluntly it's like i want to be friends with those folks i want to work with those people i want to learn with those people and if we can do cool stuff together let's do cool stuff together and that's what it felt like oftentimes working in love and rage was like you know, act up. Yeah. You know, like women's reproductive rights work. Yeah. Like, you know, student work. Yeah. Like, you know, like let's, that's what people wanted to do. Not in an opportunistic sense, but in a like, we don't have, we, we actually do have some answers. These are some things we think about. We're right. You know, like we, you know, certainly thought we were right about some stuff. And we wanted to work with other people, though, you know, and so that was uh, felt like a friendly, you know, atmosphere in that sense, you know, and then we were into direct action and stuff like that, which as a trans person, I could probably do a whole sub thing on that. But like, uh, but like that, I was into direct action, like, you know, I was militancy and wanting to, to be confrontational and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Were there other trans people in love and rights? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, uh, not really at the time. Uh, there was one trans person, trans woman, uh, who came through and I'm actually don't even remember how they got or how they did come through. I did end up writing this really terrible article about myself and trans identity for love and rage. So you could probably find that and read that. So maybe she was, uh, she was a New Yorker. So she came through there. Um, but post Stonewall, and this is a, a kind of un, un, unreflected upon topic, but post Stonewall, I think I 
I, I lost some connection to the community. And I think that, like, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is I became immersed in the anarchist community. Then I became immersed in the CUNY student movement community. And I was less connected to um, the, uh, the, you know, queer activism. And I think that partially has to do with the fact that the women, excuse me, that the, the, the queer identified people in the love and rage uh, milieu were all like uh, cis identified assigned female at birth. So it's so funny using this language because it's not language I ever thought about or used at the time. But I think that like there were some hurdles and disjunctures. And I think we we oftentimes didn't know how to communicate and, and, and connect with each other. And I think there was a lot of fear. Um, I'll give you one example, which would be um, out of the milieu that we were in, some women in love and rage formed a, a, a direct action collective. I can't even remember the name of it, um, which is telling on some level because I have a pretty good memory. So here were some friends of mine, assigned female at birth, lesbian, queer identified people. They've uh, formed this direct action anarchisty thing. And the big thing that they would do or I don't want to exaggerate that and offend them was they did a lot. They got arrested a lot. They would do these demonstrations and they would like chain themselves to things, which, you know, these things were direct action tactics at the time. And I could never do that. I was deathly afraid of being arrested by the police. And so they may have invited me to stuff. I, in fact, I'm positive they did, but I could not articulate to them and connect with them on an emotional level and explain to them that like, I don't want to be involved in this. I'm afraid of this. I can't be near this, you know, and that happened in other contexts too, around demonstrations at Republican national conventions and stuff where like, I did a lot of, <laughs> I did some things that were not exactly legal at different times and like definitely put me at risk of arrest. But I also was pretty aware of the potentiality for me to arrest and the idea of intentionally getting arrested was out of the question like i would never put myself in a situation where i was going to like sit down in front of the cops and put my you know wrists in front of me and tell them go ahead arrest me because i didn't want to go to jail and and be put in a male jail cell yeah where was your transition physically at this period um, I've been on hormones for probably 28 or 29 years. I don't remember exactly the dates, let's say around 1990. So, um, you know, and like I said, like, you know, I did a without makeup, like I'm not, I, I definitely went through a makeup phase actually later in my life, but you know, I pretty much was a plain Jane kind of girl. Um, but I always passed even before coming out. And so like, I, you know, I was really tall that, you know, certainly a defining feature of, of whatnot, but I had like not had, I didn't have any money still. And so I took hormones, which were a financial burden and that was it, you know? Um, yeah. You know, how long were you in love and rage? 
I was in love and rage probably since uh, so ninety four sometime in that period to love and rage fell apart disbanded um, in whatever it was ninety seven ninety eight yeah ninety seven I would say yeah and what was your position in relationship to it falling apart in the um, I was one of the people like that. Um, there are other people, male people that were very, uh, that are very well known. And, uh, but I was one of the people, um, who was pretty prominent in an organization. Uh, Love and Rage sent me on a national speaking tour to represent the organization during the Republican and, Na- and Democratic National Convention in 96. So I had, I, I was pretty prominent. I wrote a lot for the newspaper. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was, uh, I became, um, attracted to Maoism specifically, um, through the student movement and, uh, my roommate at the time and, uh, began kind of conceiving of a, of a, of a shift in my political, I was kind of always a bad anarchist and love and rage always was accused of being like, you know, cadre identified and Leninist influenced anarchists. And I definitely like became an embodiment of those things that uh, uh, people did not like. You know, I was, you know, uh, I went from being into the IRA and the Intifada to starting to talk about the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and these Maoist influenced national identity groups that were around in the post, you know, 1960s. And, um, yeah, I was, I was impressed by them and thought those were really cool and, uh, and started to go in that direction. Yeah. And there was a Maoist circle that sort of emerged. Towards yeah. Love and yeah. Rage. Um, me and me and my roommate were, you know, my roommate had been really around uh, the group Freedom Road Socialist Organization and influenced by the, both them and, and the RCP and and, uh, and 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 even MIM, the Maoist International Movement, at least on an intellectual level. And um, but also had had it positive interactions with uh, Freedom Road Socialist Organization in, in the Midwest and in the Northeast, and so really brought, and, and, and in the latter years of Love and Rage, particularly in New York, we got really interested in uh, organizing methodology and organizing theory. And uh, we began by looking at Mao um, and other things, what is to be done um, by Lenin. And then we discovered a document that had been written for the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, or actually it might even have been for the RCP, on the mass line. And that was a huge influence. Like, I was like super blown away by that document. And, uh, yeah, I was like, what? like, my, it was kind of like light bulbs going off, you know, it's the right place at the right time. And so, um, when we did the speaking tour, I went out west and spent some time in both San Francisco and San Diego and ran in randomly in the street in San Diego outside of about not outside at a Pat Buchanan rally. I randomly ran into a friendly woman in the streets of San Francisco, uh, streets of San Diego, who ended up being a part of a group called Storm. 
standing together to organize a revolutionary movement. And I had read Storm's founding documents that year. And all of a sudden, I'm standing behind, standing next to this woman. I'm really tall. This woman's my height. And we're looking at each other eye to eye, which is, it's a tall, this is a tall person reference, right? Like, I'm looking at this woman eye to eye, and she's in this group. And she's like, you want to go back to our hotel and hang out and talk about Storm? There's a bunch of Stormistas at the hotel. And I'm like, yes, let's leave the Pat Buchanan rally. You know, they were there to, I think we were observing slash protesting. And went to, met a bunch of Storm people, super cool folks who were like, oh, you're doing CUNY student organizing? Awesome. You're an anarchist? Awesome. And, you know, that became, that became a new layer and relationship. And Storm had some Paulo Fierre, ref, uh, uh, you know, the Maoism or, you know, serve the people, you know, these different influences. And so, um, and they were also pro-trans. They were all also like Van Van Jones <laughs> used to be like, Carolyn, you need to start the trans act up. Carolyn, you need to start the trans this, you know, you know, Van was super like, you know, saying stuff like that, you know, in, in 80, in, in 97 and 98, like, Carolyn, why don't you build a direct action trans group? And, you know, we'll all work together in these different identitarian there's a very like uh, different conception of identitarian uh, movements working as co in cohort or conjunction with each other. You know, like uh, there was Racial Justice Day in New York, which was like, you know, it was an Asian group and a Puerto Rican group and there was a black group and it was this group and that group and they all come together to do something. Right. And and and. There was a there was a moment at that time where I think that's like a lot of what Van was thinking of, and that was some of the work of Storm in the Bay Area. Let's do the you got the Filipino groups, you got the labor centers, you got the black police brutality stuff. Let's like let's all get together and like work together and 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 build a radical progressive politic. You know, it was it was it was pretty inspiring, pretty cool at the time. You know. Uh, new ideas coming into the mix for sure. So, was there a formation that you were a part of coming out of Love and Rage? Did you join any of these groups? Or it's kind of amorphic, and like uh, you know, I I I, I think we, uh, me and a friend in Love and Rage, started working with some people in Freedom Road Socialist Organization in New York, and we were like studying together and doing stuff together. And then there was a collective called the Little Red. Little Red Something, the Little Red Cell in New York, which was basically like a, a study group. Um, and we hung out and we were kind of hoping to form some kind of storm kind of group. And, um, and, uh, uh, and yeah, and, uh, and I still actually, um, to be honest with you, I still was struggling with work and, uh, jobs and stuff like that. And, uh, now I'm getting older. And um, being a student was not appealing to me anymore. And also being around so many people that didn't understand trans stuff. Now, I, now I've had become, I went from my anarchist bubble where people, there were a lot of people who identified as queer to this CUNY student movement milieu where people, it was two steps removed, right? Like no longer 
Like I would, you know, be in a room, a coalition meeting or a slam meeting with 40 people and no one else in the, in that space identified as part of the LGBTQ community. And, um, and I was, I was committed to it at the time, but it definitely wore on me. And so I think that this, um, I was, you know, also a little unhappy with my transition. Um, and so, um, it was a tumult. So there were new kinds of tumultuousness in my life at the time. Um, so this is the late 90s. 90, yeah, the late 90s. Mm. And um, uh, and so I got involved in Freedom Road Socialist Organization and started to do political organizing with them. Was not exactly completely happy in my life, though. And... Um, and uh, uh, family members of mine began to die. Um, my aunt, my my uh, my aunt, my mom, my dad had died. My my grandmother had died, and now my my mom died, and my aunt died, who was the person I was closest to, and um, I was definitely in an unsatisfied place, uh, unhappy place politically. Um, and no, through no fault per se of the political work, although the landscape began to change at that period too, but I was definitely, uh, began being unsatisfied, which kind of culminated in 9-11 and, um, my mom dying. Um, my mom died in, in 2000 and left me a 20,000, an unbeknownst to me, uh, left me a $20,000 insurance policy which was, and so suddenly I came to the realization that I could have uh, SRS or GRS as it's called. And, uh, and, uh, and then 9-11 happened. And, uh, I, and, and uh, then right after, soon after 9-11, I had surgery. And then right after I had surgery, my uncle died, who was the last immediate member of my family. And that kind of, uh, closed a bunch of, created a bunch of shifts in my life, including me uh, moving away from uh, revolutionary-minded, socialist-y, anarchist-y-minded political activism. I kind of made a shift away from that during that time period. And some of that was to take care of myself, Um some of that was to be destructive in new ways. Uh, you know, um, suddenly I had a pussy and I like uh, had a, a new sense of adventure and I was really positive. But also I, you know, there was a little I still had, had a self-destructive uh, streak running through me. So, you know, you know, so so that 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 existed there as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, I, I kind of made a shift in 2001 away from kind of one kind of politic and kind of moved back sort of, uh, I got a job at Babeland, which at the time was called Toys and Babeland and became a prominent, uh, uh, queer person began reading and performing uh about talking about trans stuff in public for the first time and uh started to do that yeah 
So there's a lot more I want to ask you, and I feel like you just rushed through sort of 98 to 2003 <laughs> or so, um, and then we still have another 15 years after that. Yeah. Um, uh, we're a couple of hours in, uh, and I think I need to get some food. Um, do you want to do a part two of the interview this afternoon or another day? What do you feel along those lines? I'm open to anything you like. Um, totally happy to do whatever works, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I have some, I have a, some time, like an hour now. Um, and then just keep in mind that, like, I'm probably not going to be back to New York City for potentially months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay, well, let, let me, let me stop these and, um, uh, get some food and we can. Tr- Okay, so just before the break, you were very quickly running through the rapid deaths of multiples of your family members, and then you've been able to get bottom surgery, and then moving into a a somewhat more destructive, less political phase, (laughs) Uh, I think, for the few. When when were the deaths between yeah so my aunt died in the summer of uh 1998 um two years later my uncle died on holy thursday which is uh would that be uh so i'm catholic or i'm not a catholic but that you know you always remember that um which is the day before good friday which is uh, right before Easter. It's like um, a- April. April, yeah. And then my mom died in March two years later. No, excuse me. I'm, I apologize. My mom died in March of 2000, which enabled me to have money for surgery. And then my uncle died in April of 2002. So, yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you having all the family? It was bad, you know, it's really bad. You know, I think that like, you know, my mom, when I came out to my mom, my mom was like, you know, I will never accept you over my dead body. Will I ever call you a different name? And um, I knew my mom was telling the truth. And, um, you know, it's taken, I can say aloud that I know my mom loved me. I can say aloud that I know my uncle loved me. I can say those things, but there's a lot of pain connected to them because when they told me they weren't going to accept me, I knew they were telling the truth. And so they did things for me. They gave me money. They they wanted me there for Christmas and such, uh, despite the fact that there was this, you know, gender disjunction and, and you know, physical disjunction and different names. But they, you know, would not accept me uh, at all, you know, and uh, that sucked. That really hurt, you know, and uh, obviously has been a through line of pain and, and, and difficulty in my life, you know. Um, you know, I think that, you know, uh, I grew up in a very provincial, blue collar, Irish Catholic community. You know, you live at home until you get married. You get a job and you keep that job until you retire. And that was not only a that was that was that was a reality, like right for some people. That was a uh, that was what they thought. Like you know, you go to church. You know, like all these things. Like 
I grew up, you know, and you could say if I wasn't trans, would that have been my reality? Or if I wasn't adopted, would that have been my reality? If I didn't, if I wasn't Irish and wasn't exposed to the political struggles in Ireland, would that have been my reality? If the AIDS crisis didn't happen, that would that have been my reality? Obviously, it, it wasn't, right? Like all these things rippled through my life and changed my path. But that's very much like, you know, the associations that I have and like the, I am friendly with some people I grew up with and they very much, you know, they have two or three kids. They take their kids to Catholic school and, you know, all those things that they, they've retained a lot of that blue collar Irish Italian tradition in a way in Staten Island they live or New Jersey or so on and so forth. Yeah. But I, but I, I, I separated from those things. I, I detached myself from the people I grew up with, you know, in a, in a metaphorical and literal sense, I went from Brooklyn to Manhattan or ironically, I went from Brooklyn to Staten Island in a funny, which is kind of funny, but yeah, you know, and, and those set me on a different path. And created a, 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 a social disjuncture, you know, that I struggled with, you know. Um, and so losing them all uh, was very painful and, and, and still is very painful, you know. Those things will never leave you. So why did you drift away from politics, from yeah, I mean, I think that, like, again, like, um, I was continue like, there, I mean, you know, there's lots of different, I mean, I think, again, it's not a singular thing, it's a bunch of things, right? Like, I still, I, you know, it took me a long time, and, you know, to have a career or careers, it took a, uh, I was frustrated. New York is a hard city to do politics in. Like, let's like, I mean, we could we could do a whole conversation on New York City being a hard city to do politics in. You can feel very socially isolated here. You can end up living and 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 you know, it's a big it's a big freaking city, you know. So, um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? Like, and how I wanted to do it. You know, like there were discussions of getting becoming a postal worker becoming an mta worker or you know those things weren't as attractive i ended up going the non-political secretarial route you know and um and uh different people and uh my my cohorts my friends they found different places for themselves a lot of them in academia a lot of them in teaching and that those were paths that seemed, it, you know, they were not attainable to me any longer, or I wasn't attracted to them. Uh, those, 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 that career path, and so, um, yeah. So like, I didn't know what to do politically, and uh, you know, we, I, I found myself doing uh, work around the the nation of Colombia in solidarity with the FARC um, in the late 90s and almost, I mean, to be frank, almost conceiving of ourselves uh, rebuilding a CISPIS-like 
solidar- national solidarity network in support of the FARC. Um, you say what CISPIS is? Uh, uh, CISPIS was the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. It's a really remarkable and in some ways underexplored uh, uh, network and organization that worked in the United States for you know much of the 80s and whatnot until the end of the war. And um, tellingly, perhaps, although for different reasons, uh, you know, after 9-11, the United States put the FARC on the terrorist watch list, which then created a ripple effect in terms of Colombians who wanted to do that work in the United States were, were very afraid. Uh, we had, were afraid that we, that some bad things could come down on us if we were doing that work. And so, um, but that work is also hard too and complicated. And I went from, you know, wanting to do student organizing to, you know, to being in this Columbia stuff, which is, has a different flavor. It's just a different flavor of the left. And, you know, CUNY, the CUNY organizing had this kind of face to face, uh, impacting the practical needs and desires and visions of people living in the city that I was living in to then thinking about, um, working with Colombian Americans and Colombians in Colombia as a non, um, I'm not multilingual. Um, I, I, I still couldn't get a passport at the time. Um, and, or I didn't, per- I actually probably didn't perceive I could get a passport at the time. Uh, so I, uh, didn't think of myself as being that type of person that was going to like adventure in Colombia and, you know, hang out in Farklandia and check out the revolution. Those things seemed like ephemeral and distant to me. So the work didn't have the same appeal. And then with September 11th happening and, and, uh, feeling like really like the wind was taken out of our sails in a bunch of different ways. I also worked by the World Trade Center. I don't want to over, like, I don't want to like sound whiny and dramatic about this. But um, but working near the World Trade Center is a very specific experience after September 11th. You know, everything below Canal Street was closed to tourism and pedestrian traffic, except me. Me and people who worked down there were allowed below Canal Street on a daily basis. And I was able to walk to the World Trade Center every, each and every day after 9-11. And it had a huge impact on me and my coworkers. Um, uh, and, um, and, and, you know, again, created another weird level of, of stuff to think about. Uh, uh, so, you know, but then I had surgery um, during this period. So I basically took a, a sabbatical. I, 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 <laughs> I lied to my boss and implied that I had some form of ovarian cancer and I had to have a procedure. Uh, this was all plotted out with like therapist who I get, who coached me on ways to like not lie and, and whatnot ways that like would not, you know, make me look like I was completely lying to people's faces 
but I took a sabbatical from work, uh, my job uh, as a secretary at a, a at a real estate agency in Lower Manhattan. Took a sabbatical, obviously, from political organizing, um, and uh, had this insurance policy and had surgery, and you know, and knew during that period that like I was not going to continue to do political work like I was doing. I was not going to really. I did go back to that job, but knew that that job was now, you know, I, I was keeping that job because I was having surgery. And, you know, so I was ready to make some changes. Yeah. What sort of firms were you working at as a secretary? Well, lastly, I was working uh, for a real estate agency in Tribeca, one of the top 10 real estate agencies in New York City, working with like celebrity clients and a lot of wealthy folks for uh, retail, residential, uh, not commercial, re so retail, residential rentals and, and sales. And I worked as like the office administrator, essentially. Yeah. So after surgery, you started uh, having a lot of sex? Yeah, I had a lot of sex. Yeah. I was super excited. Um, uh, you know, like I um, was kind of had a, a bounce, you know, I remember going to Pride I think it was actually even prior to surgery. So this would be like six months before I had surgery and, and marching in pride. And it was still a drag march then. This was like, I think this was like the moment where the trans people in the trans community were starting to say, well, like, okay, we're going to go to the drag march, but we're talking about trans issues at the drag march, right? Like, whereas the drag march was a little bit more like a countercultural festival night on a Friday. You know, it was Friday night was the drag march, Saturday was the dyke march, Sunday was gay pride. And I remember going to the drag march that Friday night and seeing my ex and seeing like part of my community. And, and I remember talking to my ex and my ex being like, she, they could tell I was excited like you know I was like had a bounce in me because I knew my surgery date was coming X number of months I think it was I think my surgery date was in November yeah my surgery date was two months after September 11 so in November mid-November uh, and I was like psyched you know I was super psyched yeah so that was a big deal and and having surgery and um, you know uh, uh, I was now willing to put myself in a space or, and it was still really hard, both in a, in a, in a confidence level, but, and also just, uh, you know, there were, there were not really any trans women in these spaces, but like, I just started to be like, I want to be in these, I want to be I seen as a sexualized lesbian queer woman. And I wanted people to really know that. And there were spaces that like, both were more more friendly to trans women implicitly or explicitly and then also like that had people that were were psyched for me to be there you know so that was cool yeah yeah i came out as a queer woman in 2000 or as a trans woman in 2000 and um uh in the sort of network of anarchist punk scenes i was in in the mm. u.s there weren't a lot of other trans women that year. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, I mean, like, uh, so, you know, there were like sex parties. There was spam in New York, which was a, a, 
a multi-gender, multi-sexuality sex party run by lesbian-identified women, largely. And then there was, uh, I can't even remember the name of it now, but there was a lesbian uh, a party, which you were allowed to go to if you were trans, if you had surgery. Mm-hmm. Although there were trans women that went that didn't have surgery, but the idea being that you weren't, you weren't allowed to pull down your pants unless you had surgery. Submit. Um, yeah, submit. That was submit. Yeah, that's yeah, run by the same people. A big fight over We had big fights with them. Like yeah, that. argued with them. And some of those people worked at Babeland, which I ended up working at. And so, so there were cross-pollinating fights over Michigan and Babeland's participation at Michigan and also the policies at Submit. Yeah. When did you get a job at Babeland? So I got a job at Babeland soon after um, Babeland opened its expand. Babeland went to an expansion period and opened its second store in New York uh, at Mercer Street, which I believe was in 2002. But I I may be wrong about that. And I had met um, a friend of mine. Um, I uh, through reproductive rights activism. I had and, and a person who was in Storm actually, who was uh, associated with uh, both Good Vibes and Babeland in the Bay Area, and so the story goes, and this is a true story. Uh, so I left my job at the real estate agency. I still had some money left over, and I decided I wanted to be this trans writer, and I wanted to. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the job. And I was in an S&M store on a bright, like September, sunny, warm day, probably in September of 2002. And in walks the owner, one of the owners of Babeland and, and with my old friend. And um, they were like, well, we just opened a new Babeland. You should come to the opening party. It's happening tomorrow night or something like that. And I said to my friend, I think I should get a job at Babeland. And they were like, that's a great idea. You should get a job at Babeland and, um, or Toys in Babeland. That's what it was called at the time. And I said, great. And, um, within, I don't know, a week or two, I had a job interview and then I was hired as a part-time person at Babeland and then I was hired as a full-time person at Babeland. Then I was hired as their education coordinator. Then it became the marketing and education coordinator. And then eventually I left the, the, the company. Yeah. Why do you think they were um, enthusiastic about hiring you? Oh, I think, well, one is, this is a friend, like a political activist, uh, uh, a person who identified as like, you know, like some kind of anarchist or red person. And, um, and, uh, they knew me as a person, as a human being. And they were like, um, yeah, you should get, you know, you should apply for a job there, you know? And, you know, like, and I think Babeland, I mean, literally, I mean, Babeland doubled the, when Babeland opened its second store in New York, it literally Maybe even more so, but literally doubled the size of the New York staff. But that actually almost doubled the size of the entire company. Like this, or or you know, twenty five or thirty percent. The company, like 
suddenly was having a growth period, you know? Did they have stores in the Bay Area at this time or outside of New York at all? Like, Yeah, what? the original Babeland was in Seattle, okay. and then they had warehouses in Oakland, and then they had the New York store in the Lower East Side, and then they opened the store in uh, Soho, um, and then they opened a store in Los Angeles, which ended up closing. And then they opened a store in uh, Brooklyn, I believe, which was after my time. Yeah. What happened to the Seattle store? It's still there. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. still there. That's the first Babeland. It's still there. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what years were you at Babeland? Um, I would say probably five years-ish. And so like 2002 to 2006. 2007, something like that, 2006, 2007, yeah. What was the workforce like, your coworkers? Way younger than me. I was older than uh, anyone but the owners. Um, you know, you have to understand to, when you applied for a job at Babeland, they got a lot of applications. It was a sought-after position, and they were able to kind of strain through those applications to find the person that would best fit the company. So it was kind of a, a, a cool place to work. There was some prestige attached to it. Um, you know, um, at the time, I think I, I might have been the first trans woman ever hired by Babeland. Um, there were certainly trans men. Yeah, there were certainly at this point, as I recall, trans men or yeah, um, who had different kinds of identities because they had come through the lesbian community and um, and and had deep connections to that community. So it was slightly different, like um, in ways that have a lot of nuance. But like, yeah, so I was the first trans woman. As far as I know, there might have been someone else, but as far as I know, I was. Yeah. And again, that's one of those dynamics like being in Love and Rage, like being at, in the student movement, like being at all these spaces where you're the only person of your ilk. And so I've had enormously positive experiences. I had enormously weird experiences. And then I had many negative experiences, some of which I wasn't even to, able to articulate then how negative they were because... They were so unique and uh, new, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you started being a public trans figure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think people would like um, very much say that, you know, I um, I started to do uh, poetry readings and public readings. Um, I um, I did. um we did fundraisers for Camp Trans. Um, I ended up co-hosting a trans reading series in New York. I did a trans tour of the United States um, and into Canada um, with three other trans writers. And did that have a name? I It probably did. I don't remember. Yeah, I think it had trans in the title probably. Um, but yeah, you know, with uh, Tennessee Jones and... Charlie Anders and um, I believe there were there was another person on the East Coast and another person on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. It was a heady time. Like um, I was doing all these new things. I was taking on these new roles and speaking about stuff. And I felt like 
in many ways I felt really good about myself and in other ways um, I had found myself drinking a lot again and hanging out with people who were drinking a lot and partying a lot again. Yeah. What were some of the tensions or debates or like open questions being worked out in trans communities that you were in at this point? Well, I think like, and again, like one thing would be like, um, so I felt really lucky to be allowed in these spaces and I felt like really privileged and um, there's probably some passing privilege there. There's like the privileges of being able to have surgery, but like, so all of a sudden I felt like really lucky and I was, uh, uh, um, and so what this meant in practice to a certain extent was I, I had already come out, right? Like this is 2000. I had come out a long time before that. And uh, I wasn't dealing with a lot of these same issues that other younger trans people were come out with. And I also didn't have a lot of support. And there wasn't a lot of oxygen for me to talk about the issues that I had faced or that pe I was facing then in the community. So there was a lot of anger. I, I definitely felt a lot of anger and rage and a lot uh I, I didn't feel a lot of solidarity from other people. And I also didn't feel like people understood me um, and respect it. Like, I think, yeah. So there were a lot of really complicated feelings like, you know, that like, um, you know, yeah. Like, you know, I, you know, came out in this, I was a very blue collar, Irish, Italian, you know, working class, transsexual woman or trans woman and I was did not necessarily fit despite the fact that there was more openness I did not fit into this world you know in the same way and there was not the same understanding about things that like you know and you could you know and that's why like Michigan is worthwhile talking about as a symbol right of 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 different dynamics that existed within the community right like i also felt fetishized like i used to make jokes and say like i want you to fetishize me like you know love me like and use those words kind of in a punk rock or angry way but i didn't feel loved i didn't feel welcomed um in a practical way I felt like a lot of people wanted to fuck me um, and saw me as a science experiment. I would go to these readings out in the Bay Area, Portland, and I could sleep with someone like that, you know, and but I felt like it was almost like an experiment, like people were like saying they could do it or had done it and that uh, people didn't really connect with me. Um, so... Uh, it, it... Help me understand that the mismatch. So it seems like there's a mismatch in uh, the, the age difference, that you're older, yeah. class, that you're yeah. blue collar and working from a working class background, yeah. uh, and also 
a gender difference of there yeah. being not a lot of trans women yeah. in this scene. Well, not a lot of gay men either, like cisgender. Yeah. I mean, like Babeland is this manicured space, right, where it's it wants to see itself as queer, it wants to see itself as feminist, and it is those things. Like I'm not trying to take those things away, right? Um, but um, it is a, a you know like it doesn't ha- you know it like uh, these are w- you know we come to the table with different things right and so as much as I don't need to tell people all about every element of my background uh, there's a way in which my background was made invisible because of how different people were and I think a lot of blue collar people at Babeland struggled who were assigned female at birth, you know, cisgendered lesbians, you know, or cisgendered bisexuals, you know, like I think people really there, you know, as much as you could say that there was a desire to, for diversity, what you had was a culture that was somewhat dominated by a certain lesbian with a capital L tradition, you know, uh, cisgendered lesbian with a capital L tradition. And so it was, you know, talking about things like camp trans and mishfast was hard. Um, talking about trans women's sexuality was hard. Um, and, and Babeland had a really hard time uh, diversifying their staff, you know, um, both racially, class-wise, and, and getting more trans women and trans men, too, you know, into the fold, you know, for sure. What were the relationships like between this sort of well-articulated queer world that you, that had this trans presence and then other trans women's communities in New York? Well, it's hard, you know, like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think that it's really hard to have your fingers in everything. I don't know if I thought there was a trans women's community in New York at the time, you know, like not one that I uh, interacted with, like, I didn't know lots of, like, there were, um, and, and it's really important to know that I came out prior to the internet, and the internet's still, like, it's not, like, the, something that I'm fluid in, like, I think, like, strapon.org um, had an inf- a huge influence on me, it introduced me to the terms trans and non-trans, I which are, very like, active in you know, but I wasn't very, I mean, if you look, I, I don't know if there's archives, you probably could see my my participation was very minimal. I read a lot, but I I didn't like I was, I'm not a very uh, I'm not a good typist and like articulator of my views. I can talk pretty good, but I'm, I'm not really good at typing out my views and stuff like that. But I was influenced by that stuff, and that's where I first recognized that there were other trans women who were lesbians and met some of them. Uh, there were trans women from D.C. who came north to submit, and I socially interacted with them and um, met trans women out in Camp Trans who identified as lesbian, or met trans women who were out in Portland who identified as trans women uh, and, and, and identified as lesbians. But I felt like I was a unicorn and felt like no one... Uh, use that identity. And I think that makes sense to a certain extent. I think a lot of trans women are perceived of themselves as default heterosexual in a, in a cis sense. 
um, in part because trans being trans can be so consuming, especially when you come out, you almost like just let everything ride. Like, you know, you're just kind of doing so much work to transition that sexuality may for some folks, not everyone, obviously, may be like a less explored thing. You know, um, I always identified as a lesbian, but at, there were only different points that I like actively engaged. Other times I just kind of coasted. And was like, yeah, I'm a lesbian because I was just so consumed by other work of my identity. It was easier too, you know, it's like being six foot two, being like, you know, close to 200 pounds. It doesn't matter that you pass in the, in the, in the world, in lesbian spaces, I'm always going to be the tallest, the biggest the girl with the biggest feet, the biggest hands. These are just physiological, objective realities. And um, so that made me feel like a little bit of a space alien or separate. There's just a little bit of separateness there. Yeah. That's a lot, but... <laughs> no, that's great. I, I started coming to Submit in 2003, coming up from Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And wow. then was very active in Submit from, like, 2004 to 2008 or so. Oh, wow. That's cool. Um, and it was uh, one of the reasons I moved to New York. Oh, wow. Like, that's to, awesome. To be able to go to queer women's play parties, mm. which I was banned from in Philly, mm. you know, as were all other trans women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to join. I was a member of the Lesbian Sex Mafia. I was a member, you know, went to all the parties. I wanted to volunteer. Like, I wanted to immerse myself, you know, in that kink community. And I definitely felt really, you know, isolated and disconnected. And, uh, uh, you know, these are some of these experiences. I went to LSM meetings and, and parties prior to surgery and kind of played a very, you know, off to the side role. Um, but then, you know, I was very active after I came out and had, sur- excuse me, after I had surgery, but I still felt very much like on the margins of those events. My partner led the effort that overturned the no trans women with their pants off role. Wow. Um, at the time. That's and awesome. She was on the board, Emily, Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that was 2000, I don't know, when, six yeah. or seven or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did this scene, either at Babeland or in this trans circuit you were in, how did it change over the time that you were a part of it? Well, I mean, I think that, like, you know, you. You know, um, I think that like, you know, a lot of people will say Babelin went corporate during this time. Babeland um, changed. But like, I think that the, the that like is focusing the microscope too closely. There were a lot of changes happening in the community at those times. And Babeland was being moved by forces that are just bigger than all of us, you know, in terms of. Uh, of society and whatnot and what it means to be in these subcultures, you know, and, uh, I think that like, um, you know, uh, I think that for me personally, I became really burned out and like felt like I put myself out 
and wasn't getting the return that I that I could have. Um, and I think that people um, and there's been some I've had some closure and resolution, but a lot of the close friends at Babeland that I had during that time period, people that I call I, I called family, um, uh, uh, I, I, I no longer am connected to. And that was really traumatizing. I think that like, um, you know, as you grow older and you learn more about yourself and 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 others like. Um, I, I left New York, a lot of people would perceive me leaving New York for like the mountains of New Paltz as like this bold visionary like moment, like, you know, with my hands held high and I'm marching into the mountains for this like new moment of my life. But a lot of it was my tail was between my legs and I was done and I... Um, I had concluded at that time that I was an alcoholic. I had started to conceive of my identity as an alcoholic, uh, like that I, I had a problem and that, um, I realized that I was super codependent on people in my life, that I was super drawn to both very destructive people and I love these people, so I'm not trying to be mean, you know, because I'm destructive, but super destructive people and people who were drawn to alcoholism. And so these are my own baggage and my own problems. And then also a community that couldn't see how fragile that I actually was, you know. And so um, people did things and, you know, it, it almost sounds like gossip or like, but like, People made me feel less welcomed. People fe made me feel less connected. Um, there was, uh, you know, this was the, the trans male revolutionary moment where trans male identities became really prominent in queer spaces. And I felt very much erased, not by those trans men, because those trans men oftentimes really wanted to be my friend and really wanted to obviously they were dealing with their own baggage, but they were still like, they saw me as this beacon, like, holy shit, there's a trans person. They're older than me. I'm connect. I want to be their friend. But the community, I felt very much alienated by. And like, you know, again, like in the most blunt ways of describing it is you had lesbians who were like, wanted, were super psyched to fuck and marry and be in relationships with trans men. And those, folks did not want me in their, in my, they didn't want me in their community or if they tolerated me in their community, they didn't want me. Um, they didn't love me in the same way. And, um, and so as, as confident and as badass, you know, and I, I, I have a, if, if there's a through line, I think a lot of people would be like, Carolyn's a badass, but like people don't understand is that like, I was super damaged goods. I was super raw. And so like, you know, and, and so I couldn't handle the disjunctures and rejections and, um, you know, in the, in the anarchist community, and this is like, you're taking a step back in these different communities that I participated in, my transness and my I, 
the wholeness of my identity probably was a little bit on the back burner a little bit subsumed by these other dynamisms that were going on but it, at Babeland and at during this time period performing writing I was as true to myself as I could ever be and it was rough you know it, you know like again like you know like I wanted family you know like in a in a communal some kind of alternative family sense and and I felt lost when I didn't get it you know and so I was burned out and 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 traumatized and I I, I left the babe I left Babeland and I left New York you know and 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 just kind of jetted out of the city what year was that like 2007 2000 yeah 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 I um my experience in moving to New York and 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 during my years in Philly in the early 2000s was that there was this trans community that was very well developed and had these political dimensions particularly New York or this mm-hmm. organizing and that trans women were um a symbolic part of it but not really welcome in a substantive way yeah like, um and that there was very little language to acknowledge that or think yeah. about that or talk about that and that, yeah. that really only emerged in the last few years like a recognition of some very different trajectories and experiences between trans mask people and trans feminine people. yeah no it's really true i mean like you know there were some again like you know um you know, it, you know, uh, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, the, the Babeland tried to hire some trans women that went, that, that, that didn't stick. They couldn't stick. They didn't fit. Um, Bryn Kelly, uh, was hired and I was, uh, I was really burned out and on my way out. And I think I was, uh, pr- I, I'd like to believe that I was friendly to Bryn, but I was not, I did not try to befriend Bryn. But I was also, I mean, I don't know what our, how long we were past, uh, how long we were there at the same time, but, um, you know, I was kind of done and, um, yeah, it was, I think that people, um, I was really sad when people didn't realize that I was like, you know, running away from the city and running away from that community. I used to joke, um, and say to people, I retired from the queer community and that was my way of saying, like, yeah, I, like, I'm done. You know, I can't deal with this anymore. You and me and Bryn all overlapped in New York for three or four years as as trans women on the older side, mm-hmm. dealing with serious stuff mental health-wise. Yeah. Um, in a, in, to, to varying extents in this dyke-dominated world as yeah. leftist people. And I... I offhand i can remember meeting you and remember meeting Bryn a couple times Mm -hmm. but i'm not sure i ever had a conversation with either of you yeah yeah no for sure and me too i mean like i don't remember ever talking and having a conversation with Bryn. um you know i remember i remember meeting you and i don't remember having a conversation with you you know um you know there were a few people on strap on that i became friendly and friends with and tried to you know but even at like camp trans like there were very few trans women. There were very few trans lesbians. There were very, uh, yeah. So like, uh, there were, at still at that point, the 2007 period, like when I like 
you could say I'm officially out of New York at that period. There was just not that much, you know? What? Why do you think that was, that trans women in this sort of dyke, trans men's world, weren't queer world, were not able to connect with each other? I think a lot of it's fear and uh, transphobia, internalized transphobia. I think also, like, I mean, I think, you know, just taking a step back, um, I didn't think I was going to live very long. I didn't think, like, you know, I didn't, like, reading that pamphlet by, you know, by Covenant House, I thought that there was a, um, a, 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 you know, uh, um, a, 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 you know, like, a, I was a, a perishable fruit. I was a perishable piece of meat at the supermarket that I was not going to last very much long for this earth. And so I would make friends in the trans community, uh, many of whom were sex workers. And I'll be blunt, I thought that people were going to die. And I didn't know, uh, I was, uh, you know, sometimes afraid of that, like, um, you know, and uh, I didn't know, I, you know, I made excuses and then I made excuses for myself when somebody would reach out and I would have a connection. I'd be like the two of us together raises the possibility that we're going to get clocked or harassed or abused in public. And I was a chicken and I was, uh, you know, I think I was, <laughs> you know, you know, like, um, ashamed of myself, like, for not doing a better job of and not prioritizing people in the community because I was just so afraid. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, we, you know, our life, <laughs> you know, is just hard, you know. So I, I didn't do a good job, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, for me personally, um, Bryn's death ha has had a huge impact on my life in ways that I think are overwhelmingly for for positive. Um, made me realize that, like, it made me realize a lot of things, including the fact that I wanted to give back to the community and... Uh, uh, wanted to be rooted in the community and that I didn't I no longer saw my happiness as being something that I wanted to live uh, find individually but I wanted to uh, find in the community and, and 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 share and connect with people and I didn't want any more people in my community to die you know needlessly um, not maybe that's not the right word but I, I just wanted to help people live. Were you able to do some healing and connecting up in New Paltz? Yes, and life is complicated, you know. Yeah, you know, I, very much so. You know, I um, uh, went from, you know, um, heavily involved in a trans community in New Paltz. I like to consider myself a leading person there. And I, uh, you know, we have a support group, which I help run. And uh, I got to go to the... Uh, the TGNCNB uh, statewide uh, leadership retreat collective gathering that happened this past September in Hudson, New York, um, which brought together over 55 trans-identified people, gender non-conforming and non-binary folks 
to uh, uh, through through the state to help strategize and heal and um, and and connect um, with each other. And I really look forward to continuing this work. Um, I also have a better sense of how to have some balance, I think, around this work and political activism in general and how it can fit into my life in a way that doesn't consume me. Um, I hope, fingers crossed. Um, and um, I, you know, I read and, 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 and you know, I'm an activist in the community there. Uh, so I feel really uh, happy and proud about that. And I do try to connect with folks in New York City because there aren't a lot of queer identified uh, trans women and lesbian trans women in the Hudson Valley that are in my age group that have had some similar experiences. And so I try to come down and, you know, do some readings and, uh, you know, use Facebook in a positive way and other forms of social media to connect with people like yourself. And uh, yeah. What inspired you to uh, agree to do this interview? Well, I mean, I think that like, um, I, you know, I do sometimes feel like a, um, a really lucky dinosaur or a really lucky unicorn that has managed to stay alive. And, um, and it's sometimes amazing. And I feel so, you know, I'm, I'm literally floored, you know, when all these different cultural things happen and nodal moments of, in our culture around trans rights and trans culture and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just the desire to get it down and to, to share and to think maybe there's some value in understanding. Um, I think like for me personally, and I believe this, right? Like I believe that, like, I believe in intersectional politics because I believe that I lived my life at the intersections of politics and that like I found I wanted to be a feminist. I wanted to be a, uh, you know, an activist. I wanted to be these things because I felt like they were um, necessary for my survival and necessary for my entire people's and community survival. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>